Right here, right now, every day. CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show and this show is... uh kind of interesting i mean you know a school is back now um as we air on tuesday uh for a day um so we'll see what happens but my two guests are going to talk about that from very different perspectives um one is an educator uh but my first guest is not a stranger to the show we've had him on before and it's always a pleasure el Kaki. he's the co-founder and imam of unity mosque a uh, refugee lawyer and a human rights activist. Uh, so we're going to talk to him about all things political, but but first of all, for, welcome, Elfrud, to the Radical Reverend Show. Hi, Sherry. Thank you for the welcome. So let's let's first of all talk about Unity Moss, just for those listeners who might not be aware of what you've what you've been doing low these many years. Um, let's talk about that. Um, the Unity Mosque is. Uh, a mosque in a box that's not in a box. Um, so we're a portable mosque, and uh, you know that your your church has hosted us uh, in our many incarnations uh, over over the years for our gatherings. Uh, we're gender equal uh, or a gender non-differentiating space. Um, LGBTIQ plus 2S inclusive. Uh, We welcome Muslims and non-Muslims alike, and we welcome all kinds of Muslims. So um, we're a universalist Muslim space on on some level, yeah. Which is really quite unique in Ontario, is it not? Uh, I think there are some other communities, and I think that the um, the spread of this movement or the, the, the notions that uh, inspire the Unity Mosque. And we've been around since May of 2009. Um, and the work of this mosque builds upon the work that I did and that Salam has done since 1991 and then since 1999. And so, um, as my friend David Pert uh, Lewis uh, uh, often says, we stand on the shoulder of giants. And so this work has been sort of like a, a Lego on, on some level. And I, I don't want to claim uniqueness because that's both an honor and uh, a, a pity uh, because <laughs> uh, we shouldn't be the only space like that. Um, but I think that there are a lot of spaces that, that have elements of those, and I think um, some of them are, are more visible than, than other spaces. And one of the things that the Unity Mosque has been able to do because of our positioning and the positioning of myself and the other founders and some of the other members um, is to create a, a space that other people can look to, um, hopefully for some inspiration and for some how-to and maybe even some how-not-to. So. Well, uh, again, thank you for all of all of that. Um, it, it's certainly, if not unique, it's certainly rare, Elfrid. So it is rare. Yes, <laughs> we're thankful for that. Um, you're also, I mean, you're a refugee lawyer. You're a, a, a man, but you're also a parent um, in yes. Ontario, and uh, mm-hmm. this is back to school week in very unusual circumstances. So maybe speak about that a little bit. Uh, you know, your son's what four and a half years old. Yep. Now. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, like talk about that. Well, you know, it's been a, the pandemic has been uh, quite a, a challenge uh, on, on multiple levels. Uh, Child care, uh, when you're self-employed, like I, I have friends and cousins who are, who are employed and who are working remotely and they're getting a check. Uh, you know, that didn't quite work for, for me in my situation as a, as a lawyer who's, who's self-employed. And yes, there are some... Uh, things that were some financial help, which was really, really helpful and and stuff. But uh, at the end of the day, we're still all crunching, I think, right? Um, The no childcare, no adequate plan to return our children safely to school uh, means that uh, uh, 
we're not sending him back next week and we have a privilege that we can somehow manage and I can go without an extra hour of sleep maybe um, to, to sort of compensate that. But I know that not everybody is able to do that and some people don't have a choice to send their kids to what they perceive to be uh, a dangerous situation. And I'm, I'm hearing stuff that's actually making me sad, which is, oh, it's okay, it's survivable. No, <laughs> there are people who are dying from it. There are people who are suffering long-term effects and impacts of it. Um, we are better understanding the virus and its impact, its long-term impact on our bodies, on brains, on, on breathing systems and so on and so forth. Mm, I'm not going to put up my kid or for that matter, anybody's kid uh, up, up for that. And if people think that it's trite, then power to them. Uh, I'm not here to argue with them or so on and so forth, but uh, that's certainly my, my sort of understanding as a, as a parent and, and uh, the risks I don't want to take with my child's health and, and, and his life. So, uh, Speaking here to Elfru Kaki, who um, co-founder and imam at Unity Mosque, um, refugee lawyer and human rights activist here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you're just tuning in. Um, I, I should mention too, we're taping this show a few days before school starts, but it will air on the Tuesday, uh, one day after school starts, um, which is where, when you're hearing it out there in listener land, uh, just, uh, you know, continuing on, um, we've just come through 2021. I mean, we have survived El Farouk, so if there's a piece of good news there. Um, uh, uh, and so have, you know, those in our, our circles for the most part, Part. Um, so looking back on that year, uh, looking back on the political situation in Canada and in this province, um, you're a human rights activist. What do you see? What do you think? I want to scream some days. I have to admit that um, we've been stretched in the last year, uh, again, around childcare, around um, not having enough resources, being self-employed, um, financial crunches, all sorts of stuff. Um, not everybody I know has pulled through, um, through this. And we definitely know people of all age ranges um, uh, who have passed as a result of COVID and who have passed because um, the system, even if they didn't have COVID but had something else, the system just w didn't have the capacity or the infrastructure to be able to manage all the, all the, the needs and the demands. That's aside from all the mental health issues that we all suffer from isolation and, and, and so on. Politically, you know, um, so the management of this is obviously a huge political issue. So, um, and I am sort of stunned by people's uh, um, positioning on some of the issues around masks and 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 vaccinations and 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 so on. And it it honestly doesn't make make much sense to me, but um, I think what we have seen politically is an inadequacy of the provincial government um, in order in being able to manage and I think a larger agenda of privatizing healthcare um, and further impoverishing the poor. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sad indictment of a province that has so much and such a rich potential uh, that we are willing to sacrifice the most vulnerable in our society. Um, and when we do that, we actually sacrifice everybody else because every, everybody is interconnected. You can't have um, one part of our, of our infrastructure for our society suffering uh, and impoverished and think that the rest of the organism is, is, is healthy. So I think we're seeing this inadequacy in the provincial government, at least some of us are. Um, and this, this disregard, I mean, the, the announcement to defer school until the 17th came at the very last minute. Uh, it gave no chance to parents uh, to, uh, to plan, to uh, find alternative solutions and so on and so forth. Again, this utter contempt for, for the common person and, 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 the, and the common good. Um, federally, uh, I mean, I think some of, the, some of the things that have been put into place as a financial sort of uh, support for, for COVID, I mean, I think that, that, that 
was good. I think they could do better. Uh, I'd like them to forgive a lot more of that, uh, of those, of those loans and 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 so on. I'm disappointed with some of the environmental stuff from the federal government and some of the international stuff. Sticking to the Canada stuff, the environmental, the pipelines, and then and the native issues. Um, you know. Uh, the please don't cry for me, uh, Mr. Trudeau. Um, we don't need we don't need um, your tears. Um, what we need is is justice. You know, and somebody I, I can't remember where it was. I I heard somebody a meme or a, a soundbite that we Canada is is known for its work in emergencies uh, uh, disasters in around the world and and getting these machines that that, that purify impure water um, and yet we can't do that for 30 years we can't do or for 150 years we can't do that in our own indigenous communities um, and that's not to say that we shouldn't be doing it over there um, but if we can do that in an emergency and set it up, why can't we do this and have it done already uh, way before? Um, the other sad issue, of course, locally has been um, um, as we continue to um, excavate the atrocities of uh, the Indian Act and residential schools and the cultural and spiritual genocide that that these institutions uh perpetrated and continue to perpetrate against uh first nations and indigenous peoples in you know, uh in in what we call canada so um that's what i see and uh <laughs> sometimes it's it seems kind of bleak and kind of um and yet through all of this we see these little i read these little stories of glimmers of hope and you know um one of the parents at my at my kid's school just uh i was uh, we were texting back and forth and she said um she's been cooking for her neighbor because her neighbor and her kids are sick and there's nobody uh, else in the household right now who can take care of them so she's cooking for them to take care of them and you know and it's in those little moments of um of generosity of uh, um, kindness that that uh, especially I think people of, of of faith can find can find hope for 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 tomorrow and so I, I look forward to this year and I hope that it's a, it's a gentler and easier year um, as we move forward. Speaking to Elfruk Kaki, now you're also a refugee lawyer, Elfruk. So mm. to put that hat on for. For a bit, how has the pandemic affected that? Uh, I certainly know in our own church context, we supported one LGBTQ two plus refugee out of Syria um, successfully a while, but that was pre-COVID, and since then it's been really difficult to get yeah. anything done. So, what are you experiencing on the legal side of all of that? Well, certainly with borders with borders closed, uh, it's it means that people can't get to safety, right? Um, even irregular crossings like Roxham Road in, in, in Quebec that allowed basically people to, to walk across the uh, unpatrolled border uh, at this sort of crossing point and make their claims. And that accounted for thousands and thousands of people. And that was, has, was not accessible. It, it sort of opened up, but it, it's precarious. And now the, gov now the federal government um, has announced that it's going to be introducing legislation to close that loophole so folks won't be able to enter from from places like that which is dangerous because people will cross the border and we had instances of people crossing in the last winter uh, around the prairies like in, in I think in Manitoba or Saskatchewan and in in extremely cold weather and dying and so you know we're seeing these images that come out of Europe and um, the migrants who are, who are being killed, who are dying, crossing the Medi trying to cross the Mediterranean, where there's now a humanitarian crisis at the Poland-Belarusian border, and uh, Polish troops have amassed there. Um, so people are not getting to safety, and that includes people not being able to get to Canada for safety. Um, before we went into lockdown in March of 2020, the Refugee Board had about 84,000 files that were waiting for hearing. And of course, the shutdown um, just 
prolonged that i mean the, i guess the, the shutdown uh didn't result in a huge increase i haven't looked at the numbers that uh of how many people were actually able to get to canada to make refugee claims last year but i suspect that it's it's a significant drop uh i can certainly see that in the in in the flow of people that are approaching my office and many of the people are approaching my office have actually been here from before the lockdown but for whatever reason are, are now looking to make uh, uh, claims for refugee protection. So I, I think there's, uh, while the refugee process internally continues to sort of adapt and, and, and respond and the refugee board has moved on to an online online platform so that hearings can continue i think there's you know uh people are not able to get here people are not able to get to safety and uh you know whatever federal government we have um every time they change the legislation uh nine times out of ten it's to make it more restrictive and then the, when the next government comes in that changes it either makes it more restrictive or even if they open it up again, they never open it up to the level it was before. So we're now talking about, now, now this liberal federal government is talking about closing the loophole that allows people to be able to cross uh, um, at unofficial border points and, and be able to enter the country so that they can make a, that they can make a refugee claim. Um, so the, the future, I think, for, for migrants, refugees, and displaced persons uh, in this year is, is um, in the last year, and I think in the coming year, is, is tenuous. And of course, that also, if people can't get here, it means that people are often stuck in the places where they fear harm, uh, or they are stuck in, in limbo in a third place where they cannot, where they may not face direct harm, but where they're not getting the protection protection like the refuge like the migrants at the at the Polish border uh, or the folks trying to cross in uh, the Mediterranean so I, I that's a bit to me that's a bit bleak and of course people are stretched financially all around the world which I think is going to affect how much people give and what they give to to the charities and to the organizations that are doing on the groundwork whether it's in it's in uh, with the Rohingya or with uh, migrant workers or in Gaza or in Africa or wherever it is um, and I think that's um, that for me that's worrisome as a refugee advocate Let's, um, let, let's also talk about racism, um, because it's hard not to. Um, we, we saw this incredible global movement of Black Lives Matter that has happened over the last uh, several years. Um, uh, but then we saw the, you know, the government, the federal government react in, in an incredible, uh, uh, well, some say racist way. I'd like to get your take on it um, with South Africa, when, uh, of course, the you know, the, the, the latest scariant, as it's called, you know, uh, emerged. And then it turned out, of course, it emerged in Europe and not in South Africa at all. But at any rate, maybe talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, we, we, we see Canadians now, some eligible for fourth doses and, um, and those in developing world nations, you know, barely being able to get one dose. So, yeah, maybe yeah, because you're close to, to migrants and refugees, what are you hearing from the pipeline about that? Um, you know, I, I, I have little windows through Instagram and through my social networks and connections and so on. And I mean, I really think that the, the, the um, way the response to the pandemic um, is manifesting in different places is uh, is very interesting um, I mean even even across Canada last year the way um, it is in the Maritimes and the way people were in the Maritimes or in British Columbia has been has been very different than let's say in downtown Toronto for people like like you and I right so um, with the numbers here now that's changing of course of course with the Omicron um, I mean, I think that there are some, uh, you know, when we talk about racism, racism is insipid. We were talking earlier about indigenous folks and so on. And, and so environmental racism, in the, even in Canada, and, and where uh, indigenous folks have been uh, put on, where, where, where reservations have been created, or where uh, historic black communities have been forced to live uh, in, in Nova Scotia and the lands that they were given, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think we continue to see that. Uh, you know, can, People don't know that that um, uh, 
that South Africa's apartheid was based on our past laws, right? So I think sometimes Canada is in a in a difficult situation internationally to criticize uh, what goes on elsewhere because of the foundation of our of our own society. And um, there's no other place where I would really like to live other than Canada because of all of its strengths. But I think we need to recognize um, our histories and our and, and our foundations so that we can rework them and re-energize them and and actually make them work for for everybody and in that way making them work better for ourselves right so um, the notion of the racism and access to medication uh, and and shutting off of borders to certain regions I mean this disease this this illness the coronavirus uh, COVID-19 has been uh, an illness of the white and the privileged uh, it spread on 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 cruise ships uh, <laughs> uh, ski retreats uh, in the uh, in, in in the Alps and so on and so forth which I think also explains um, the precipitous response uh, by so many governments and pharmaceuticals to it. Um, other illnesses like HIV, for example, that were perceived to inflict marginalized populations, homosexuals, Africans, sex trade workers, uh, and so on and so forth, didn't elicit the same, the same sort of response uh, or, or, or inclusion, right? And I think that's all sort of connected even in terms of how people are like the RNA business and so on, because that, that, that sort of came about with HIV meds. And so um, how is that all sort of interconnected? So I see, I, I see the subtle racism and the, and the microaggressions that, that, that continue to influence um, our both national and international policies. So. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing it, of course, uh, speaking uh, on the Radical Reverend Show here, if you're just tuning in, to El uh, Farouk Kaki, who is uh, the founder and imam at Unity Mosque, uh, among other hats that he wears. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> now with the antivirals that might save your life if you go into hospital, um, they're phenomenally expensive, of course, so you can only mm-hmm. imagine who's going, to, who's going to have access to those and who is not. Uh, that's already rolling out. I want, to con- I want to spend some time just in conclusion, and it's been great talking to you, El Farouk, um, just with, you've got your faith hat on, literally. <laughs> so let's talk about faith. Um, you know, you and I, we stand up in front of congregations um, yes, we, you know, like I, I had a seminary prof who said, you know, it's, it's the law in one hand and the gospel in the other. It's the good news, mm. and, you know, it's the bad news, good news you're always talking about. Um, where's the good news? Like, what do you, like how you, you're, you're talking to people who many of them um, are themselves marginalized and, and, um, and need hope um, through this. And there's, how do, you, how do you give that coming out of your faith as a Muslim? I... You know, before I answer that question, I was actually thinking that I should, next time I talk to you, I should have a, a variety of hats sitting here so I can just keep flip, literally flipping them. Um, my, my revolutionary beret is sitting over there. Um, where's the hope? Um, I think that for me, the, the pandemic and, uh, is a result of our not listening. Our not listening to nature, to the world around us, and to our responsibility to uh, the to the planet, uh, and I think it, this was something like this was inevitable. We are literally parasitic on this planet, and I think that all the all the other folks who are sort of having a a, a response to not accepting this or, or or whatever are actually not accepting that we have failed as uh, in, in our responsibility to this planet, and we continue to fail. Um, Where's the hope is that more people are having conversations and more people are saying no <laughs> to to these ideas of exclusion, um, to double standards, um, because now we have access through platforms uh, that can be used for good or bad, just like anything else. But my, you know, my experience of, of a lot of social media is that it helps create community and connections. And I certainly have had from the very beginning as part of my mosque community um, or as part of the queer Muslim community and so on, folks who have no other access to a space like ours or a space that is somehow um, redemptive or healing for them, 
either because of social isolation already or because of um, uh, physical or other sort of access issues or uh, distance. I used to have one person who uh, was trans-identified and the nearest mosque was like 200 miles away from them and they had a concern that uh, they might get challenged because of their gender um, exp uh, expression um, going into going into the mosque space and so for that person our mosque was like the only space they had and this is before lockdown and I think that a lot of people have discovered um, the power of being able to connect I think um, the internet shrunk made us a global potentially a global village so you could share community with somebody uh, on the other side of the planet i think what COVID has done is that it has flattened um the distance uh differential which is that my neighbor two blocks away is as far away as that person in Indonesia uh, or as inaccessible. And so it's, I think we're, we have to reimagine what community looks like and, uh, and, what, and how we, we create those, uh, those linkages. And I think it's a great potential for, for faith communities, particularly inclusive ones, to be able to reach out uh, because, you know, the United Church might be um, old hat in uh, in Canada, but it's very new hat in other parts of the world, um, and its messages of inclusion around gender or sexual orientation and so on and so forth need to be heard by other Christians. You know, I was talking to a client, to a couple actually, and I asked them if they'd gone to if they'd been to any of the churches either online because they, they, they arrived just like at some point during the during the pandemic and they started to laugh and I said did they ask you something funny and and they're they're from a Christian background and they said a gay church go to a church as a couple are you kidding right because in their experience where they come from that's that's not heard and so you know coming back to our first conversation about the the unity mosque i mean my my congregation my facebook congregate membership is global my the people who attend our services and our events online are also global um and when people can't make the particular time they have access to the recording which also then gives them access to this space and so I, I think that's that's the sort of silver lining and that's the the rays of hope that we can continue to shed through the through the darkness and i think it's those networks that we are creating and those um healing spaces that that are potentially there for people to be able to access that they couldn't access before i think that that that's that's part of the um the hope that we can share uh, speaking here to Elfru Kaki, and by the way, out there in listener land, um, if you, just as, as he says, if you miss their services, you can watch it online. If you don't uh, tune in, uh, you know, at the radio station time, and thank you CIUT 89.5 FM for hosting us, um, then you can always listen to some podcasts, SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast in the future. We got like two minutes left, El Farouk. Um, you're a socialist just like me. Um, Mark said, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. Um, in, in a minute or so, tell us why that that is, you know, not quite true. Well, I don't know whether it's not quite true. I think anything can be an opiate, right? And so... Uh, for, for me, um, somebody asked me this question, I can't remember who it was right now, it was very recent oh, about, about being Muslim, and I said, well, it connects me to the universe, it, it, it gives me insight into my, myself, but it also connects me, at least my interpretation and my understanding, connects me to everything around me and the whole universe around me. Um, and if you call that an opiate, then so be it. But, you know, politics is an opiate. Um, sugar addiction is an <laughs> opiate. There's, there's many things. And nothing in itself is intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. It's what we come to it with and what we do with it. So um, if it makes you a better human being, if it makes you feel better, if it helps create community and healing space for you, then I think it's a good thing. Thank you. Uh, total pleasure, El Farouk. Um, Thank you. you know, uh, and here's to 2022. <laughs> I look forward to it. Take care. Thanks.
the sound of your city. CIUT 89.5, Toronto. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, wonderful to have you out there in listener land. And just a reminder uh, that please send your comments. I always respond. Uh, we love to hear from you here at the show. And uh, as you heard, we just spoke to El Farouk Kaki. Um, one, of the, one of the aspects of El Farouk is that he's a parent. And for all you parents and educators out there, tomorrow's the day. Um, you're going back to school. We're recording this, by the way, um, uh, on Saturday and Sunday. So we're a little bit ahead of the curve. So you'll have a day in by the time you're hearing this show. Um, so do let me know what's going on. Uh, I'm on Twitter, as many of you know. And, and lately, it's been all about education on my Twitter feed. And to speak more about that, I'm delighted to have one of the Twitter activists uh, in the education area, and that is the musing educator from Twitter. That's her handle. We're not giving her identity away so she can keep being the muckraker that she is. <laughs> um, and I just have to say there are so many educators and parents on Twitter who are letting their thoughts be known. Um, it's become quite, uh, quite the forum truly for trying to get the government to do things. So, Musing Educator, welcome to the Radical <laughs> Reverend Show. Oh, thank you so much, Sherry. Thanks for inviting me. So, let's start with you. I mean, just, you know, how did you get on Twitter? What started this activism um, uh, that you're so clearly involved in? Just, you know, generally, without giving away, you know, your, your anonymity, um, a little bit about you. Okay, well, well, first of all, I'm an elementary teacher uh, within an Ontario Public School Board, and I've been teaching for close to 30 years. Um, I spent most of that time teaching in the junior and intermediate grades, and uh, in the last few years, I've been working um, as a CERT as, as well as a part-time teacher for, for part of that day. Uh, I'm, I'm married, and I have two girls who attend university, and I'm very passionate about the welfare of children. And I have a low tolerance for injustice. And so it was about, well, actually almost exactly a year ago that I decided to join Twitter, I think really to, as a form of therapy and stress release because, you know, I was just hearing so many um, half-truths and outright lies in the media from our education minister regarding the situation in schools during this pandemic that I, you know, felt compelled to um, speak out in some some way. So I, um, I chose the student amusing educator mainly to protect myself as, you know, teachers really don't have license to speak openly about the truth, you know, about contentious uh, issues. And so, yeah, I've been, I've been using this platform to connect with others, to kind of get the truth out, a little bit of stress release. And, uh, and I, I would like to thank you for, you know, helping to amplify the voices of teachers because I, I see your posts and I read them and I can see, you know, obviously you're receiving a lot of direct messages from educators from all kinds of different school boards across the province. So thank you for that because, you know, our voices aren't being heard and uh, the media is often very one-sided. So uh, I really appreciate that and I know others do. Well, thank you. I'll, um... Thank you, musing educator. <laughs> Thanks. <for that. laughs> um, I, I, I also love your post, which is why I invited you on the on the show. Um, one of the things I've noticed about Twitter and why I've been really taking to it in the last many months is that uh, I know, having been a politician myself for many years, that politicians use it as kind of de facto poll. You know, you have to pay money for polling, but uh, this is a way of getting polling for free, in a sense. <laughs> so if things are trending on Twitter or if you're getting a lot of voices kind of piling on about an issue, that tends to, you know, politicians' ears perk up at that. And I've noticed there's, there's this direct corollary, really, um, always too late, always months too late, but of some movement by the foreign government after there's a lot of chatter on Twitter. Right. So they are clearly, and their strategists clearly paying attention. So um, I just have to recommend it to all of you out there in listener land, you know, do, you know, get your feet wet because that is, that is the social media that politicians are listening to. Other things, other media, got it. But Twitter is truly the political uh, medium right now. And it really does seem to have an impact. Um, as I said, a little too 
late sometimes, <laughs> but uh, always too slow, um, but it, it does have that. So, so let's talk about the opening of school now. Um, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Well, like a lot of educators and, and probably a lot of parents, um, dread, to be honest, um, anxiety. Um, you know, everyone's trying to get their ducks in a row, but we really know what schools look like on the inside. Um, we're concerned, you know, for our students, our, you know, we all know immunocompromised staff members and students. Um, we're just really concerned. We know that chaos is headed our way. Um, the fact that school boards are planning contingency plans for mass um, sickness amongst staff and being prepared to put basically any <laughs> available adult in the building into a classroom um, in the event um, that staff get sick and they're planning for that. That's really what the plans are about. That tells you something. So, um, you know, it's kind of hard. You see this train coming at you. And, you know, as educators, you know, you're trying to get prepared for your, you know, to teach and, and for all kinds of eventualities, but we really just feel like a train is coming at us and it's going to be hard to stop once it hits. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of anxiety to be honest. And you're not alone. That's what I'm hearing from just about every educator out there. Um, so what should have, could have, would have happened? What, sh what should the government have done? And and really keep in mind, I mean, this pandemic's been with us for a couple of years now. Mm. I mean, there, this is not a surprise. I mean, it is a surprise in, in the sense that Omicron has taken off the way it has, mm -hmm. but it's not a surprise that we're still in pandemic mode. Um, what should they have been doing maybe back in the summer to prepare for this? Well, from the very beginning, um, no one has asked for any input from educators, from the people who are actually in the building and, and are know the logistics of the day-to-day -day operation. Um, teachers are very creative. I mean, we, we, you know, we talked, talk amongst ourselves. There, there are all kinds of strategies we would have gladly and willingly um, provided and, and suggested to the government, but, but we've been shut out of the whole process. And here we, you know, but we've done everything we've been asked to do, you know, all kinds of pivoting and changing the whole methodology of teaching and everything that we can do to make, you know, to, to do right by the students. Um, but we've, we've been shut out. And, um, you know, kind of what strikes me is here we are now with this um, incredibly contagious airborne um, strain of COVID. And to my knowledge, there hasn't been a single um, medical officer of health or any medical professional come in and do a risk assessment with school in operation. I mean, we, we see, you know, these politicians in half empty buildings and we hear all of this talk about how safe schools are. Um, our restaurants are closed in Ontario right now to indoor dining. Um, I can assure you that every single school right now has multiple restaurants operating at lunchtime. We have 20 to 30 children from 20 to 30 different families sitting side by side. They are not two meters apart. They are 30 centimeters if lucky, um, jammed into classrooms. Um, often the kids are wearing you know, flimsy little cloth masks to start with, so they're not very well protected. And then they remove their masks twice a day um, to eat their lunch. And um, you know, it's just hard to get your mind around this whole thing. So no one's come through to actually see this you know, very crowded congregate setting and to provide us um, with the types of uh, safeguards and recommendations that would actually do something to keep children safe. Um, in fact, this year, our class sizes went up in the junior intermediate <laughs> grades. Like, you know, it doesn't make sense. If you were to take, for instance, the square um, meter size of a classroom and enter it into the Ontario store capacity calculator, so it's about 69 meters squared on average, uh, you get a number of about 17. So if, we, if, if, if a classroom was a store, the maximum number of um, patrons or customers allowed would be 17 right now. But, you know, we have up to 30 and perhaps there are classes that are even larger than that. So, so these are the kinds of things. There hasn't been any forethought. And um, now at the 11th hour, we hear talk about, you know, uh, rapid tests being shipped to schools and, you know, staff trying to break apart these boxes of 
tests to divide them up so everyone maybe gets two and you know some schools I'm reading teachers have posted they haven't received their N95s and you know the children aren't getting any medical grade masks you know they're they're cloth mask uh, being shipped in. I mean, there's just so many things. It, it's really mind-boggling. Today, so. um, I, I, I retweeted the content of this, but um, it came out of London, Ontario. But uh, there was a, an article um, in, I, I, I gather, a local newspaper there that talked about how um, some, you know, some 148,000, you know, a significant number of, you know, rapid antigen tests had been shipped to their board. But because they, you know, each each uh, container had 20 um, doses in it, you know, <laughs> or 20 mm -hmm. tests in it, um, they're going to have to break them all up into two by two, you know, two tests yeah. and put them in baggies. And they figured out the time it would take to do that. And they figured that it would take, you know, one person, if they were doing it full time, about a thousand hours or five weeks <laughs> to just do that. Um, yeah. And you know, um, you know, news alert, news flash, um, and apparently this isn't even this is quasi legal. This goes against the Canadian mm -hmm. Health Act. You're not supposed to do that because right. you could imagine um, hands all over. But also, there's one set of instructions. Who gets that? Um, right. So you know, it's it's really problematic. So and that's a board that's clearly getting them because we're hearing from other boards that haven't mm -hmm. received them yet. So it'll be March by the time they break those up into, you know, baggy sized uh, uh, and, and really two rapid tests. Like how much how yeah. is that? So um, so so there's that. Um, what about ventilation? Because we saw that Lecce in his last news conference said, oh, we've shipped out, you know, an extra 3000 on top of the 70,000 HEPA filters. Yeah. So what does that look like where you're at? Is there, in fact, a HEPA filter in every classroom or ventilation that can be counted on? So there, I would say that in the vast majority of Ontario schools, um, there will not be HEPA filters in classrooms. In our board, um, to my knowledge, the only uh, classrooms that have HEPA filters are kindergarten classrooms because last year uh, there was a part of the year where masking wasn't mandatory. Um, we've been assured that we've had our uh, HVAC system, at least I know in my school, has MERV 13 filters. So that we were told that's as good as a HEPA. So, you know, I mean, there is that. But um, this idea that classrooms all have HEPA filters is absolutely crazy. They will not. The vast majority will not. Um, you know, Lecce is very good at throwing out these numbers to, to you know, try and um, con the public but if you do the math it, it breaks down to you know like maybe a one one half while well, we're getting in the next shipment our school's getting one half a filter so um you know it's just crazy um so yeah and and here's the other thing too when you have a lot of little bodies in a room eating if it's just a you know a, a filter in your hvac system um, that's not going to be enough we're going to have to open up windows kids will have to wear their coats while they're eating. There's no way around it if we want to really mitigate the risk. Um, it, it just can't be done. So um, yeah, I, I know teachers, that, at least that I work with, will definitely be keeping their windows open. It won't matter how cold it is outside. Uh, that's you know one of the few things we have to deal with the most dangerous part of the day. Speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to the music educator on Twitter, I highly recommend following her uh, Twitter feed. It's really informative. Um, I, I'm also hearing from teachers in, in terms of ventilation who are being told they can't open the windows, <laughs> some of them. Others that are in portables will be opening everything up uh, mm -hmm. because the portable's small. Um, and, and, you know, the, we're talking about really severe cold out there right now mm -hmm. and a possible snowstorm. Um, this week, uh, again, we're talking about kids in their first week of school going back. Um, and let's let's talk about the the Ministry of Education too. I mean, um, I, I, it's it's shocking to most people. How often has Lecce even been in schools? <laughs> no, I mean, well, no, exactly right. We've we've we haven't even seen him really in 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 months. And the few little you know selfies you see him post are in a, I, well, usually it's on a Zoom call to a classroom somewhere. It's not even in the classroom. And then it's, a, you know, a half empty classroom somewhere. So no, there, there's nobody um, coming into the schools in operation. I would like to see him spend a full day next week. I'd like to see Dr. Moore 
spend a full day next week in a public elementary school and circulate while it's lunchtime to take a look at what they are telling the public is safe during the peak surge of a pandemic. Um, there isn't an educator anywhere that doesn't prefer face-to-face -face teaching. Online teaching is 10 times as hard and we wanna be with our kids, but we wanna be in a safe environment. We want our children to be safe. In the elementary schools, uh, a large number of the children are not double vaccinated and our youngest aren't vaccinated at all. So why wouldn't we just wait a couple of weeks till, I mean, our hospitals are under massive pressure. A number of our parents are healthcare workers. If they've managed to escape COVID so far somehow, that luck's gonna run out when their children go to school. I mean, it's a domino effect. It doesn't take, you know, much to understand how how much schools can impact the rest of society right now if we open at the wrong time. A, a recurrent theme from the Ford government has been that schools are safe, it's community spread. It's not <laughs> spread in schools. Despite, I have to just say, there's lots of evidence out there to the contrary, but it, it it's, keeps perpetuating. And then we saw, of course, the 500 doctors, whoever they are, um, right. who said, um, this is all fine, send the kids back, mental health, mental health. And actually there's a, an epidemiologist that I follow in the States, I call him the bad news bear, but um, he's good for doom scrollers for sure. Uh, but he has a lot of followers, Dr. Eric uh, Fagel. Oh, yes, he's, I follow He's actually been great. on this show. We've I, I, oh, I just had him wow. on the show and interviewed him. Um, but he posted some stats showing that actually um, uh, mental health issues, especially suicide in high schools, I was looking at high schools, mm -hmm. goes up when kids are in school, not down. Right. I mean, you shouldn't laugh about this, but, but I mean, I, he was questioning the whole narrative around this, right. you know, that... Um, undoubtedly, I mean, online learning is, is you know, not great. It's not, it's awful at times, especially for little children. I mean, everybody knows that. Um, so what is, you know, you're an educator. What's this, what can we do? Like, what could they do um, in best case scenario right now? What should be happening? Well, to be honest, I really think, I know they, they'll never want to, want to do this, but I really think that they should be delaying the start of school for two weeks. Um, New Brunswick is now doing that till the end of January, Prince Edward Island at least another week and may extend that. Um, we are in a peak surge. I, I've never seen in, in all my years, hospitals in Code Orange and, you know, I've never read messages about certain areas of the province not having ambulances available at a certain time. Uh, it's not just about getting terribly sick from Omicron. It's um, the fact that if our if our healthcare services are stretched further, anybody who needs care for any reason may struggle to get that. I mean, there are people waiting for surgeries that, you know, they're not, it's not cosmetic surgery. Th these are surgeries that people need to possibly live like I so I don't understand when when you think about the times that we have had to go online when the risk was lower than it is right now why we wouldn't wait two weeks um, what you're saying um, and again speaking to the musing educator here on Twitter uh, one of the uh, one of the many activists that are on Twitter trying to make our schools or get our government to make our schools safe um, we, we also forget that there are children with medical issues that are in those classrooms, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, children yes. that um, even some some children that are, are, you know, coming in with cancer diagnoses or, um, you know, immunosuppression. And then there are, you know, those closed classrooms where, you know, uh, what used to be called special ed children, certainly in my day, um, were, you know, they they can't wear masks um, mm -hmm. and they and many can't be immunized at all. So staff um so i mean you you talk about dread use the word dread um is that the general mood going through staff now in schools i mean what are you hearing from teachers are they are people going to retire early are they getting what, what's happening well i think um all kinds of things there have been more i've seen more um, educators in the last few years um of all ages um go on stress sleep because uh, the stress is too much. I mean, teaching at the best of time 
it, you know, is a lot of work and a lot of stress. Then you add in all the family issues and, and children and, and all the rest of that. Um, so people, you know, are, are already feeling pretty stressed, but now you add this to the equation um, where you'll be trying to keep yourself safe and your kids safe and your students safe and all of that, or maybe you've got him, you know, compromised family members. I know a number of us have said goodbye to our parents for, for a while because it, you know, I expect on any given day to have been exposed. And so I need to protect the people around me. Um, so there's all kinds of thoughts. Uh, also, we're getting prepared to, you know, um, possibly collapse classes, uh, run and cover classes all over the place. There's all kinds of things running through our minds right now. So I don't think there are going to be very many um, education staff members uh, sleeping well tonight. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Um, we're taping this, of course, uh, be before it's being aired. Uh, you're listening to it on Tuesday and possibly later um, if you're listening on um, as a podcast. Uh, but we are taping this over the weekend, the show of the Radical Reverend, and I'm speaking to the musing, edu ed um, musing um, educator here. Um, that's her Twitter handle, and um, we're glad she's there. Let's talk about paid sick days, because I know for many uh, parents, this has been, I mean, you know, they're kind of caught between the proverbial mm -hmm. rock and hard place because, you know, if they don't work, um, they don't get paid. Um, they don't, they need to pay the rent or the mortgage. They need to feed their children, their families. If the child, you know, they, they're not working at home. They're not working from home. Um, do you think that's playing into it? And also paid sick days for teachers and staff as well. I mean, what's what's happening with that issue? Because we, we granted, I'm just going to say it out, out you know, out front now i mean we should have at least 10 paid sick days yeah. in this province if we want people to quarantine for 10 days we need 10 paid sick days um we don't many most people don't have that so um so but what are you finding with with people's situations well i well, i was just going to underscore what you said about the 10 paid sick days it's unconscionable that we don't have that in this society especially when we've been in the midst of a pandemic for two years um as well they should have uh, put far more effort into ensuring that daycares were safe for the, the workers and the children there. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable how, how much disregard this government has for um, children, people who take care of children, seniors. We've seen it on the, you know, the both ends of the spectrum, the vulnerable people in this society. Uh, if, you really, if they really cared, they would ensure everyone has access to paid sick days so people don't have to... Um, you know, make a choice about going to work sick or, or whatnot. Same with, with uh, daycare. I believe, are we the last province that doesn't have $10? Um, yes, $10 yes, we haven't, we haven't made, we haven't made the deal. We haven't, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, this, uh, the government, uh, it, it relies on sound bites and hoping that everyone has a short-term memory. Uh, but we're not going to forget. And I know if, you know, full-time workers, at least in the, in the education profession, have access to 10 sick days a year. Um, but there are people who, you know, I don't believe that the occasional teachers do. And the same with anyone who's on contract position. So there's a lot of different types of workers within a school setting that don't have access to, to those types of uh, sick benefits. So, you know, we need to be taking care of everybody in this manner. And because it because it will affect all of us, it's it's not in isolation. I wanted to speak to you about um, the overarching kind of ideology of this government, which is to privatize everything. Mm -hmm. We see this in in healthcare, where if you've got one hundred and eighty dollars for a PCR test, you can walk into the mall mm -hmm. and get one. <laughs> if you don't, you're going to stand in line. If you're lucky enough to even get a place in line, um, the same with rapid tests. Yeah, well, that, I, you know, have, it's go un ahead. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, just one tiny example, the slap in the face before uh, the holidays was uh, the fact that Lecce, you'll hear him talk about, well, you know, kids, they already have the rapid test we gave them before the holidays, which every family that I know used to make sure that they were safe to, to visit family members, but uh, they didn't see fit to give any education staff uh, any of those tests before the break. Now, that's unbelievable. You know, <laughs> talk about disrespect. So, uh, yeah, it, they're setting this. I mean, it, it makes you think about this uh, march towards, you know, breaking the system so that eventually, um, you know, things will be privatized down the road. Cer certainly, it's going to be hard to recover from all of this.
have you seen that happening with parents, um, you know, any parents that you, you know of in your system? Because certainly I've just anecdotally, I've seen it with, you know, sort of friends and friends of friends who, you know, if their child has any issue, like maybe they have a learning disability where before could be accommodated in some sense. And now they're, you know, kind of kind of squeaking by and, and taking them out to send them to private schools, even though they, you know, wish they could send them to public schools. And now I see that trend kind of where people are even, you know, and we're not talking about sort of, you know, right wingers here, but they're thinking even homeschooling period um, because of the safety factors. Um, like, you know, this, this is, of course, a problem. Do you see this happening in your own board? Um, you know, I haven't um, talked to a lot of parents on that level with respect to the uh, private the private route, but I do know that our system needs so much more support um, for our children with special needs, for the children with learning disabilities. I mean, you talk about the 500 doctors demanding schools open um, <laughs> for mental health. Well, we've been struggling with few resources for years. Our, many of our students are desperate to, to see counselors to, to receive the supports they, they, they need uh, to get better. And we just don't have access. I mean, kids are on wait lists, whether it's in the community or within the school system. So if these doctors want to advocate for mental health, I'm all for it, but please do so all throughout the year and after this pandemic, because um, we need it. Our schools, we you know, we have many, many children that need more support. And no matter, you know, we are trying our best, but we just don't have access to it. Speaking here, uh, if you've just tuned in to um, uh, the musing um, uh, educator and, uh, and you're listening, of course, to the Radical Reverend show here, we're talking about the first week back to school um, after the break and and what we're hoping is not a tsunami of, uh, of illness. Let's talk about this, this process that I've seen happening in boards of uh, not marking children absent if they are at home learning online. And now, you know, we've heard about this 30%. If it's 30%, it's going to be considered an outbreak. People will take note. But until there's a 30% absentee rate, not so much. Talk about, talk about, what seems to most people to be fudging the figures. Well, first of all, I'm going to mention, I think that the school boards have been um, as blindsided as educators. If you think back to when Dr. Moore um, came out and, you know, to tell us almost in a gleeful manner that how very, very safe schools were. And then shortly after announced, uh, there was the announcement that schools would reopen on the 17th but it came through twitter first and through it was leaked to media the school boards a whole full 24 hours later uh, we received um, letters from the school board saying they were still waiting for official confirmation so that's complete disrespect for the school boards uh, right there so i think a lot of them are scrambling uh, i think it's a very fluid situation yes i've read, read some you know initially yes it was going to be 30 percent in my board before parents were act, uh, notified but now thankfully um within my board at least they've agreed that at least parents that report the test I mean, there's another issue there's no mandatory reporting of, of results here but when the school has been made aware of a case in a classroom a notice will go home to parents each time so that parents at least will have somewhat of a better um, idea as to whether or not they want to risk sending their their children back to school but that's not the case in all boards from what i've read i've read that some boards have actually sent letters to parents asking them to volunteer to supervise classrooms that's how <laughs> that's how um, much of a, a chaotic chaotic situation they are expecting to find us all in so um, I think you will see things change once I think everyone's been waiting to see what's going to happen this first week. I do know that uh, at least in my board, they're giving parents the opportunity to select remote um, by a certain date, but then they're kind of stuck online to, for the rest of the year. So in the meantime, teachers are still expected to teach in person, but to post things for their uh, for the kids that have decided to wait at home. So, you know, there's that added part to the whole thing. Uh, then there's the technology issue where, you know, a whole bunch of technology was sent home for online and now we're trying to reel it all back in. So there was, you know, it's, it's just, I mean, there's just so many moving parts. I can't tell you, but we don't hear any of that because 
you know, they what, what you don't hear doesn't exist. So they don't ask us, they won't accept any input from us. So the public never gets the truth from our Minister of Education on any of these issues. Well, thank you. And that's probably a good note to end on. We're out of time, but thank you so much. Been speaking to the musing edu educator um, and uh, thank you for your activism on Twitter and a shout out to all of those folk on Twitter, Twitter who are being activists because it does make a difference. So keep it up, keep it up. And by the way, phone your MPPs, especially conservative MPPs. Um, do phone Doug Ford. He says he will answer phone him. Um, do email uh, Stephen Lecce. Um, again, he says he will respond. So let's see. Let's call him on all of that. And meanwhile, um, just know this. Uh, educators, parents, and kids, um, there's a whole, uh, a whole group of us out there that really just want the best for you. So you're not alone. Thanks so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much for having me, Sherry. I appreciate it.